Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. So glad you're here today. Um, while we're sitting there in the dark, that music playing, I feel like I should have come out like with a robe and boxing, you know, it's like, man, I'm ready to fight something because it's like that kind of music. Um, that was an amazing like lead in music song wise. Um, so glad you are here today um, on this beautiful September morning. Today we're kicking off a new series um, called No Offense, and um, like No Offense is supposed to be coming up on the screen, so maybe we can see if we can get that working um, and make sure it's working, but I'm not offended. That's a phrase, No Offense, that um, I've heard my daughter start saying um, recently. It's um, one of those things where I don't think I ever actually said that to her. I never taught her the phrase, no offense, um, but somewhere along the way, she learned it, and it became this thing that she would start to say to me, well, Dad, no offense, and I realized very quickly that no offense was always preceded by something that was offensive, and I'm like, I don't, well, maybe you actually have figured out how to use this phrase, because you seem to say things um, that perfectly capture um, what's about to hurt my feelings. It's like when people uh, will say to you, you know, like, hey, I, I'm, like in the South, that's where I grew up, uh, there was a phrase where people were like, bless your heart. And that was like this coded way of saying you're a moron, um, when they would be like, oh, bless their heart. And it was like, they're an idiot. And so that's my nice way of saying they're an idiot. And my daughter is already internalized. And so I'm watching this play out in my house, but I think in some ways this is what is playing out across um, the nation. Uh, I saw a study by CNN that showed that 75% of Americans they had polled were angry about the state of the nation. That 75% of, um, it didn't matter if you were a Republican, Democrat, or an Independent, you were angry. That anger seems to be, outrage seems to be kind of the, the defining moment of this age. And in some ways that makes sense, right? I mean, one of the core things that you learn when you kind of counsel people or kind of help guide people through horrible or hard situations or something you've intuitively picked up on through dealing with human beings is that hurting people hurt people. In the middle of being hurt, in the middle of having pain and frustration and anger about a situation you're in, it's easy to lash out. And I think that what we're living in is this age of outrage that in some ways reminds me of locuses, um, which is, so here's what I'm going to do, this little disclaimer. Hey, I'm going to need someone to follow along with me because this thing is worthless. Okay, so um, <laughs> this is the first image. Um, I, I want to give you a little bit of a science lesson, all right? So not going to get into the scientific name of this thing, but this is um, what a locust is. Now, what's unique about locusts is that they have two phases. There is the grasshopper phase, which is what you see here. This lovely creature with its very intricate wings and very gnarly spikes on its legs there um, is a solitary creature who does not like to be around other creatures versions of this grasshopper like he's he's not going out clubbing he's not looking for hangout time with his friends but what happens is in certain conditions under certain pressure under kind of a series of things environmentally this 
right here turns into this image right here. Same grasshopper, but this is called the locust face. This solitary green creature, when it gets around a bunch of other solitary green creatures in the right environment, transforms into something that can devastate an entire economy. These solitary creatures begin to swarm, and they swoop in, and they devastate crops. There can be so many of them that roads become dangerous to drive on because to drive across a road filled with hundreds of thousands of these things every few feet mean that it's like driving on some slippery surface and cars run off the road. And when I was thinking about this message, this thing came to mind. Because what was solitary and green is now angry and brown. What was this creature that never swarmed is now this creature that doesn't even look the same. It's swarming with all these other ones. Something internally has happened in the grand kind of swoop of this species. And I would argue that in the last 580 days, because who's counting, of this global pandemic, that the reason we're in this age of outrage that looks and feels a little different in some ways is because as a society we've made this similar shift. We got isolated. We began to understand people and through the news feeds that we saw, through the echo chambers we lived in, and that you and I live in a society that is completely transformed and become something that looks different than what we came into. Um, my family, right before the pandemic, February 2020, we went to Disney World and did something I thought I'd never do. We had matching T-shirts. If you knew me, you would know there is not a Navy SEAL team with any weapon in the world that can make me wear a matching T-shirt with anyone. But I did. After years, um, and, and I had that shirt on this morning, and um, my son was like, what's that? And I was like, buddy, this was the world we used to live in. This is not the world we live in right now. We've shifted. And, and while that sounds really depressing, I think it puts us as people especially people who follow Jesus, in a potential bright spot. I mean, we were reminded of that shift yesterday. When September 11th, 2001 happened, the nation came together and we went and attacked the enemy. And then the pandemic happened, and on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, I was thinking about our nation like so many of you, and I realized that we have turned to attacking each other. So how do we step out of this age of outrage that we find ourselves in? And I think if you're a Christian, then it's not just a how-to, it's a you must step out of this age of outrage. So how do you do it? That's what the next three weeks of no offense is about, is how you and I begin to be people who live outside of the outrage that defines this age. And to get there, I want to take you to a passage, just a couple um, 
It's three sentences, in fact, because there's a lot to say in three weeks. And so I just don't want to, I don't want to go too fast, too far. I want to touch on a very practical way of navigating this age we live in. And it's found in the book of Romans. It's a famous passage. And while there are countless other passages I could have chosen, I chose this one on purpose because it's just common enough that you've heard it before if you've spent any time in church. It's just, it's just easy enough to remember that even if you haven't spent a lot of time in church, you're able to absorb it more effectively. Um, a little bit of context before we dive in. The book of Romans is named after the group of people living. It's, it's named after the city Rome. There were some Romans who were in that city who were part of the early church. Paul, who was the apostle, who was this individual who wrote a majority of the New Testament, um, writes a letter to this group of people helping them to understand their faith and to understand how to live out their faith. And so the book of Romans is a very interesting, um, very, um, it's almost like a, a theological treatise in a, in a way. The first portion of that book is very dedicated to these broad sweeping theological themes that explain the underpinnings of Christianity and why Christianity matters. And then at a certain point, roughly around r chapter 12 of the book of Romans, there is a pivot towards the practical. And it's in this pivot towards the practical, it's in that second section of the book that I want to pull out a few sentences that give us, I think, the guidance we need to figure out how to step out of this age of outrage we live in. So Romans 12, and if you have the Encounter Church app, it's already preloaded, but if not, it's going to be on the screen here. Um, just two verses. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, what Paul does in just these few phrases, in these just two verses, is he is challenging a fundamental operating system of the day. Because this is a harsh place to live. Rome, if you're a Christian, is not a place that is easy. Especially as the church began to grow and the Christian church began to have a lot of the focus of the political hatred and rage of the city because they were easy scapegoats. And so being a Christian in Rome had certain pressures. It had certain evils that would come along with it. And what Paul is doing from the get-go, I think, is showing the church, the people of Rome, that they're to have a different posture. Because the phrase, do not repay anyone evil for evil, is alluding to the default operating system of the day. Which was, if someone does evil to you, you do it back. You slap me, I slap you. You do something to me, you say something to me, I'm going to give it back to you. This was the default of the day. And Paul, from the beginning of this section, is saying, hey, I want you to realize this is a different default. His whole, whole section there is about teaching the church that their posture is meant to be of peace. That's to be the default. It wasn't what they were taught. It wasn't what they saw. But it's, it was who they were meant to be. And in order to, to have that posture of peace that we see in those two verses, I want to kind of walk through sentence by sentence because in the midst of this kind of paradigm shift, he actually gives us some very practical ways of doing that, of navigating that. 
So this is how we step out. The first thing is do not repay anyone evil for evil. I don't want us to jump over that simple sentence because embedded in that sentence is some powerful implications. Paul is saying, I know this has been the way you have done it before, but I'm telling you there is a new way, a better way, and it's a way that you have some intentionality and a choice to do. You have an ability to choose peace. You have an ability to choose this different way. You have an ability to to intentionally live in a way that doesn't reflect the default of the world. And I think sometimes we forget that. We default into evil for evil. Somebody cuts us off, we wave to to them with one finger, right? I mean, it's just like we... Our reaction, our response is to repay. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to repay, I want you to replace it. You've got the power to replace it. You've got the power to live differently and to do differently. When you hear criticism, don't take it personally, take it seriously. The only thing that you and I are supposed to take personal is our responsibility in the situation. And this is the first thing he's alluding to. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Is that there is a personal responsibility implied in this command. He can command it because you and I can do it. You can't command something people can't do. I can't command you to go fly because you don't have the capacity to do so. So the very fact that Paul commands it is a powerful statement that you and I, especially as Christ followers, have the capacity to operate differently. And that first step is that personal responsibility of owning it and saying, you know what, I may have been treated this way, but that doesn't have to be the way I respond. Someone may have been harsh to me. Someone may have lashed out at me. Someone may have done something to me. But I have a choice to respond thoughtfully, not escalate carelessly. And this is something in our household that we've tried to embed in the language because we we want our children to grow up with a different default than maybe what is so often taught in the lives that we've lived. So we often will say in our household something I've said before. We say Team Causey, which is really cheesy. I will never, ever make a T-shirt that says Team Causey, to be very clear with you. Okay? I'm stating that on, on like, the interwebs. Okay? So the Internet can be used against me. We'll never wear a shirt that says Team Causey, but our family live and lives that team calls the mantra. Mantra. It's when my wife and I have disagreements or when we have tension. One of the things that we will frequently do, this is in fact something I teach couples when we go through premarital counseling together, um, is I teach them the value of externalizing their arguments. And so when my wife and I are talking about something, like let's say it's finances, let's say it's um, our schedules, let's say it's uh, vacation, let's say it's something one of us has said, probably me, that was stupid, Um, we will oftentimes externalize it. We'll pick up something like a salt shaker or a book or something on the table and we'll sit side by side and we'll place it in front of us and say, this is the issue, this is what we're talking about. If you work for me and there was serious conflict, I would probably do the same thing with you. Be like, hey, let's talk about your performance, not talk about you, but let's talk about the way and what you have done recently that I want to see changed, like externalizing it. So it's not personal. 
we can take it seriously. And this personal responsibility, I think, helps you come up to the table and say, okay, let's work together to deal with this issue. And the reason we externalize it is because it's a very subtle thing. Think about it. There are people who literally get paid to show up at places where people have guns and are holding other people hostage. And these people, when they show up, they recognize that the words they say and the words they don't say actually may influence whether or not the people in that room with the armed gunmen or the terrorists may actually live or die. And what is genius is I, I'm, um, I actually like reading books written by those people. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is a lot of the practices the FBI uses for hostage negotiation tactics are present in this passage that we're talking about. And one of the first things is this posture that you come into it and you're cognizant of responsibility, you're cognizant of phrasing. And so this is maybe let's just play out a fake conversation in a household. Let's say you have uh, one of the roles that you serve in your relationship, maybe in a romantic involvement, is that you are often the ones who, um, you're, you're the cook, right? You're the one who 80% of the time you're cooking. And your spouse comes home and they say, hey, um, they walk in the door, you've had a hard day, you've had a long day, and you're like, I don't want to cook. They walk in and you're like, you never take me out. When's the last time you took me out to dinner? Well, hold up. What just happened? Now, this is where the personal responsibility piece comes in. This is what hostage negotiators use, and this is even embedded in the posture that I think we're supposed to have. Um, a, a better way is that spouse walks through the door, and you say, I've had a long day. I don't feel like cooking. I want to go out to eat. Now, the heart and the desire behind both of those statements are the exact same thing. The first person uses you, which puts people on defensive. The second one uses the word I and speaks from a personal position. So this is what I mean when I say externalizing. Because what happens if you don't externalize? It starts off external. It starts off about being the bank account. It starts off with being, you know, how you've been out three times this week and, and you're really tired of having to deal with the kids at home and blah, 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 blah. You've been traveling a lot. You, 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 you. And eventually it's not your schedule, your financial situation, your whatever fill in the blank. It becomes you. And next thing you know, it's like, Three weeks ago you did something and it's being brought into the conversation and then someone's mom gets brought into the conversation and it goes south really quick from there, right? And it all started with something small, but it got internalized. It didn't say externalized. That's where the UI. And, and Paul is calling them to, to think differently. I'm not going to repay you for what you've done to me because it never it never balances out. Those, the ledger sheet of revenge never balances out at the end of the day. Have you noticed that? Never balances out. One side keeps adding, and it's just, it keeps depreciating. And so this different way of saying, you know what, I'm going to take personal responsibility. I am going to own what I did wrong. I'm going to own my part, and I'm going to speak only from my perspective is what it looks like. 
to operate with a different type of posture than the one that was the common default of that day, and I would argue the common default of this day. But the genius of God present in this passage isn't just this personal responsibility component that's implicit in the command. There's another part, and it's the second sentence when he says to them that be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, this is an actually very interesting progression. He's saying, I want you to have a posture of peace. The first thing is I want you to realize that you have a responsibility to bring and to be that force of peace in that relationship. You're to be a peacemaker, not a peacetaker. And the way that we peacemake, not peacetake, is through that personal responsibility, not repaying evil for evil and having that default. And then he pivots and he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes. Well, it's like, well, of course. If he'd ended there, he'd be like, of course. That's why I said what I said. That's why I did what I did. That's why I responded the way I responded, because I was doing what was right. They did something wrong. I was writing it. But he actually argues in the eyes of everyone. Kind of an interesting phrase. This goes beyond empathy. This isn't just trying to see it from their side or giving them the benefit of the doubt. This is, this is completely different. This is about stepping out of your world and being able to intentionally step into the world, objectify the situation, not just externalizing it, objectifying it, seeing it from different angles, intentionally recognizing there's something bigger at play. Yes, empathy is part of it, but it's not the only part. I came across an interesting study um, that was done with Red Sox and Yankee fans. Red Sox and Yankees are arguably one of the greatest rivalries, not just in baseball history, but in U.S. sports. And the reason is because if you've ever been to Fenway, you'll know it's not just a good Red Sox-Yankees game isn't just defined by cheering for the Red Sox. It's also defined by loathing and hating and yelling at the Yankees, too. Right? And so I, I don't, I've never been to a Red Sox-Tigers game and heard people hurling insults at the Detroit Tigers because no one cares. But the Yankees game, people are like, man, and they say things I can't say on the stage about the Yankees, okay? And it's part of the game. It's part of the cheer. Why? Because to be a Red Sox fan, it is not enough to love the Red Sox. You have to hate the Yankees. And not just hate the team. Everybody who cheers for the team has to be a moron. And so this is why a couple researchers picked the Red Sox-Yankees. And the fan base. And so they were trying to experiment, which in this very kind of, uh, I don't know, like foreshadowing of where our nation was headed um, before the pandemic. Uh, they tried different tactics to figure out could they help to, like, bring down the anger. So the first thing they did, which is a very common uh, thing that people encourage people to do, is they tried to humanize them. And they're like, well, let me introduce uh, Red Sox Jeff to Yankee Ted. So Yankee Ted comes in the room, and they're like, hey, Red Sox, Jeff, here's Yankee Ted. You know, you and, you and Yankee Ted, you both like boating. You both graduated from a college out in the Midwest. You have a, a wife and two kids. 
They're the same age. Like, you have so much in common. And after some times, Jeff and Ted, they may even laugh a little bit. And they leave and they're like, I think we did it. We were successful. And then they poll them. They question them after. And they're like, what do you think of Ted? Well, he's a good guy. What do you think of Jeff? He's a good guy. What do you think of Yankees? They're turds. Well, what about Ted? Well, he's the first turd that I've liked that the Yankees have, but the rest of them are all turds. Again, a substitute word for what you might actually say about them. And what they realized is that humanizing didn't actually fix the problem. It just turned Ted into a, a, less, a lesser version of the horrible version that they were before. And then the researchers did something that was genius. Something that God, 2,000 years ago through Paul, encouraged us to do. He asked Jeff to imagine that he had been born instead of Dorchester. He asked him to imagine that he'd been born in the Bronx. And that he grew up going to the games Yankee Stadium with his dad and his uncle. He asked him to imagine all these defining moments in Yankee history and being present for them. And then they would say to Jeff, after the questioning, they would say, hey, if you had experienced all of that, who do you think you'd be cheering for today? And oftentimes, they would say, I'd probably be a Yankees fan. See, I think what they discovered is that, and what they saw was a precipitous drop, actually, in animosity towards the opposing team and their fans. It goes, most of us, let's just get real, okay? Most of us, the views you have that you are so passionate about are really a byproduct of geography and where you were born and what you were exposed to ideologically growing up to pick something really controversial do you realize that most of the music that you think is the greatest music was the music you heard when you were in your late teenage to early 20 years that I can predict the music that you think is good just by knowing your age why because a lot of times our musical tastes a lot like some of the things that we think are really strong were byproducts of geography and the household we were born into. Now, hear me. I'm not trying to intentionally attack or to demean the views you have. Some of us arrive at things convictionally. But a lot of times, it's we have views that are more coincidences than they are results of conviction. And this is what the researchers found. People who would have cut you over the Red Sox or the Yankees. By the end of the interview, we're willing to concede that they probably would have become a Red Sox fan or they would have conceded they would have probably become a Yankees fan. And this is absolutely genius. Because think about it. Right now, pick a news agency, pick an article, pick a situation Oftentimes, we turn people into their positions. We shrink them dimensionally. They're morons, they're idiots, they're fill-in-the-blank 
because they believe this one thing. We reduce people to their position. Instead of what Paul is trying to carefully challenge us to do, which is to see the person, not just the position. He's not saying you've got to affirm their position. He's not saying you've got to agree with their position. But holy moly, like as a nation, we need to learn how to have a conversation with people who disagree with us and we disagree with and still be human beings at the end of the day. That there's something I think most people spell love L-I-S-T-E-N. And that when we're willing to listen to them and their story, we communicate a profound amount of love in the experience. To be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Imagine if our news feeds weren't filled with demonizations, oversimplifications of people because of the positions they held. Again, not saying you have to agree with their position. But this is about this posture of peace of being people who take personal responsibility, of being people who understand that there's something about having the perspective of others that helps us foster peace. That my wife jokes with me because um, you don't know this about me, but I'm the type of person, if I'm driving down the street, and I see, like, uh, like a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, like, I'll go pick them up. Because I'm like, they're not going to come to my house. I'm going to go pick them up. I don't agree with them. Theologically, I have a vastly different worldview than they do. I can explain that worldview to you, but I'm not. I know it, and I know they know their worldview. What I'm so fascinated by, the reason I've spent time in Thailand sitting down with Buddhist monks, is I want to understand, tell me what was it like growing up? What brought you to this point? Because I want to understand people. I want to know where they're coming from. Because what you understand at the end of the day is that maybe the world that we've constructed of cardboard around us, really more of a house of cards, isn't as strong as we think it is. And that this whole posture, so my wife jokes at me because she's like, you're just a weirdo. Because we'll walk, I'm like, hey, Jenny, look, there's like a, a, a cult over there. I'm going to go ask them questions. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm not trying to be argumentative. I just want to understand. Help me understand why you believe that dude is God and why all the women are married to him. Can you unpack that for me? Because I am genuinely fascinated. Because I, as a default, think, that you and I are only in positions to have true dialogue and debate with people when we understand the side, the other side, the opposing side, if you want to use that verbiage of war. Um, unless I understand their position better than they do, or at least at the same level, I'm not going to pick up stones and throw it at them. And the reason why is because I take this verse very seriously. It says, be careful, be thoughtful. Be intentional to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, in case you think I've given you an impossible task, here's how he ends this section. He says, if, right, in that next portion, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, 
live at peace with everyone. At the end of the day, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, those are two strong caveats where he's saying, oh, by the way, if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Reality is, is that it's not always going to be possible to live at peace. But the emphasis that Paul has had throughout this thing is this statement, as far as it depends on you. And here's the genius of what Paul is doing. If a group of people take this posture, then what you will start to notice is this exponential growth of peace. Because maybe if I'm committed to peace and you're not committed to peace, maybe we're not going to see peace as easily. But if you come into the situation committed to peace and I come into the situation committed to peace, then we will probably get to a peaceful outcome. If you come and 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 we're all there and we all have this posture of peace, then it increases the likelihood that we're going to arrive at some kind of position where we can all have a little bit of peace. But that it starts with you. That long before, you know, all, all these other things and all the other people and all the other fallacies of thinking that's out there that, you know, we'll talk about in the next couple weeks, it's not them that's in the way. It's you and me having a commitment to be people of peace that is what starts us on that way. That you and I have to be people who are committed in our relationships, in our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our social media feeds, to be people who seek to live at peace with everyone. Knowing that at the end of the day, there's a big if attached. And the reason I think this is so amazing is because you go back to what I said at the beginning and who wrote this. Paul writes this letter to them in a city where it's hard to be a Christian and to live at peace. He's written by a man who understands intimately where peace ultimately comes from. See, I think oftentimes what happens, the reason peace is a hard thing, what Paul understood, this is critical, is that we tend to think that the reason we don't have peace the reason we can't get peace is people out there. That's why we attack, right? But in reality, this is why we don't get peace. Because we get shook up, and what's in us spills out. We get shaken, and we mistake what we're seeing, us lashing out, us pouring out our frustration and anger. We think it's because of them. And really, it's a reflection of what's going on inside of us. And Paul had lived this kind of life. Where he was waging war with the early church because they were robbing his peace. And ultimately, on the road, one day he met Jesus and realized the reason he doesn't have peace out there is because he didn't have peace in here. And we forget that the man who wrote this letter had just a previous decades before had been trying to kill the very people. No, literally, the reason the church was in Rome 
that he was writing this letter to is because Jews who had been Christians, who were living in Jerusalem, converted, their lives were now in danger, and in Acts chapter 8, you see the breakout of persecution against the early church, and the church scatters. People who become Christians travel to different places, and one of the places these group of people end up and help to seed and start the church is Rome. In a very indirect, indirect kind of way, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who are only there because of where he once was and his hatred of them. And what Paul, the best way to understand, yesterday we kind of had that somber reflection as a nation about what happened 20 years ago. And many of us, all of a sudden, became aware of a name we'd never known before, Osama bin Laden. I think that was the first, like, name of a foreign leader that I knew that I wasn't required to know for a test. Because here's this person that I didn't know who hated us so much that he'd orchestrate this tragic, really complex thing that we reflected on yesterday, 20 years later. The only way I can fully capture for you, what happened in the early church would be something like, had Osama bin Laden not been executed in the raid, but 10 years prior to that, on the 10 year, 10th anniversary of September 11th, had gone through some radical conversion, showed up in America and said, I want to fight for the U.S. Army because I believe this is the greatest nation on earth. I mean, if that had happened, people would be like, what in the world? You have to realize, that is what happened here. A terrorist trying to stop the early church becomes the person who goes and spreads the church more than anyone else in the first century. Why? Because this had finally been healed on the inside. It no longer came out anymore because he had peace on the inside. He had peace with God. He had peace with others because he recognized what Jesus had come to do. That through his cross, through his resurrection, Jesus was a declaration, the living, living embodiment of the peace of God who had come to pave the way so that not only there would be peace this way, but that in having that peace of knowing where you are, where you stand with God Almighty, and having that quiet confident assurance about this life and the next life, that that peace, that security, that hope, that joy would start to permeate. And when you get shooken up and shaken by life, you don't spill out and lash out at people anymore because you have peace on the inside. And that is a way different starting point than maybe what you thought we would be today. Because peace, as far as it depends on you, starts with you and me taking personal responsibility, learning to intentionally see through the eyes of everyone and gaining a different perspective. And by doing those two things, we start to have and to be people with a posture of peace. And that is how we begin this journey of stepping out of this age of outrage 
that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be present today, and to have a conversation about something that is really important in this season, in this age. Thank you that what you wrote 2,000 years ago is so relevant for today. Thank you that the person who wrote it embodied that peace because of you, Jesus. Thank you that because of you, Jesus, no matter what we're going through, no matter where we are, no matter what we are in the midst of, can be people of peace because of you. So help us to make and to take that courage, that commitment, and to live it out in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we're going to wrap up today um, with a song that's just a declaration. It's called Yes, I Will. And it's just an upbeat um, kind of way of saying, you know what? Yes, I will. This is who I'm going to be. This is who I'm going to show up in my marriage. This is who I'm going to show up in my workplace. This is where I'm going to show up with my kids. This is where I'm going to show up with my neighbor I don't like. This is where I'm going to show up with my family members who have a different viewpoint than I do. That yes, I will. I'm going to be a person of peace. I'm going to be a peacemaker, not a peacetaker. Not golly gee, Ted Lasso, conflict avoidant. Right? But a real peacemaker who shows up embodying what we just saw in that passage. So this song's just a declaration of that and a statement of that. And we recognize for some of you, like, um, conversation I was having right before the service started are in places right now where it's really hard and it's heavy and so we, we want to be people who walk with you because I believe you can have peace regardless of the circumstance and the situation and so you know right now we don't pass the basket because we're in a pandemic and turns out probably passing something that could communicate communicable diseases um, is probably not the best practice right but I'm grateful. We live in a digital age, right, where you can, through the app, let us know how we can pray for you. Or through physically just on the way out, swinging by, and just saying, hey, can you pray for me this way? That through our app, through um, conversation, through email, that we can step in with you. And whether that's praying or whether that's you stepping in and you wanting to be a part of this church and what God's doing in it. Um, or whether that's through giving, that we get to be people of peace even through the financial realm. I mean, this week we um, were able to write a check for someone who had a devastating experience uh, in their extended family in Haiti. And to know that as a church, because of your generosity, we were able to help literally rebuild their mom's house and the aftermath. So we get to be a part of that peace. That only happens because of your generosity. And so while there's not a basket being passed, um, you know, we have a box in our office or, um, or through the app, encounterchurch. You know, forward slash give. Like, there's different ways you can be a part, and we want to encourage you to step into that um, because in all the different ways that we can, we want to not as just individuals but as a church be that expression of peace. So whether through serving, whether through giving, 
We believe that the church is meant to be that light and to hope, especially in an age and a place that desperately needs it. So I want to invite you to stand. Um, our team is going to close this out, and then afterwards I'll come up and give you some, um, some guidance because we have a little bit of an after party today, and I kind of want to point you in that direction as well. So um, our team will lead us, and then I'll be up right after you.